here's one more episode for you before the American Glaucoma Society annual meeting this week. There are still three more episodes coming out soon with Chris Johnson, Ron Fellman, and Murray Johnstone that I recorded in 2016, so be sure to subscribe so you can hear them all. Welcome to Talking About Glaucoma, number 27, the podcast of indeterminate frequency and length, in which I talk with glaucoma colleagues about hot topics in our field. In this episode, I'm talking with Tom Harbin from Eye Consultants of Atlanta, an author of Waking Up Blind, mandatory reading for all physicians, residents, and fellows about the tables being turned on two whistleblowers when an ophthalmology department chair was up to no good. In this episode, Tom and I discuss ethical issues in the medical treatment of glaucoma. This includes generic versus brand name drugs, the need to shop around for the best price, and looking out for talks from so-called key opinion leaders. I'm Rob Schertzer, a glaucoma specialist and educator in practice for over 20 years, and we're Talking About Glaucoma. And welcome to another episode of Talking About Glaucoma. Today, we're talking with Tom Harbin from Atlanta, and we're going to talk about some ethical issues in uh, glaucoma. I think some of the things you want to talk about are related to uh, pharmaceuticals and prescribing medications, so uh, take it away. Yes, uh, two topics come to my mind, and there are probably more in, in regards to medications, and one is the responsibility of the prescribing doctor to take the welfare of the patient into account, not just the medical welfare, but the financial welfare. And by that I mean prescribing generic drugs whenever a generic drug will do the, drug will do the job and save money for the patient. Many of us, by reflex, go for the brand name or a combination. And part of the reason for that is all those visits from the drug reps. And they give you something, sometimes just a little something, but several studies have shown that that engenders a feeling of reciprocity on the part of the prescribing doctor. So even if they don't do much for you, you feel obligated, and therefore you may subconsciously prescribe the drop that they want you to, even though, if you think about it, a generic would work just as well and serve the patient's overall interest better. And many of these patients are just desperately poor or financially disadvantaged, and saving just a few dollars a month makes a big difference for them. Do we know for sure that these generics are just as effective? I've had experience with the ger- generics in, ophthalmo- in glaucoma for a long time, and I, I think there have been some studies that have shown they are uh, equally effective, and to be passed by the FDA as a generic, you have to demonstrate that you are similar to the brand name in almost every aspect. So I think they are equivalent. Actually, to, uh, to, to be more specific with that, I believe the Generic Act came into effect in 1984, so that means that any drug that came out after that time, uh, if there's a generic equivalent, it has to be equivalent in both its concentration of the active ingredient and its uh, inactive ingredients. So it just excludes anything that came out before 1984. Well, most of our expensive brand name glaucoma drops came out after 1984. So I think uh, uh, Latanoprost for Zalatan and uh, 
generic dorzolamide slash timolol for COSOPT uh, work just as well as the brand name. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm really shocked at uh, the prices lately for some of the medications for my patients. I was always assuming that, that no drops would be more than $40 out of pocket for a patient. At least that's what I was used to in, in Canada uh, before I moved back to the States. But I'm seeing patients showing up now with a prescription that costs them $270, and I, I just can't believe that. The same thing is happening in Atlanta. It's amazing the variation in prices for the same drop between various drugstores. I've had patients tell me they pay $11 cash price for a ton of prost, and somebody else comes in and says they were asked to pay $40, $50, $60 for the same medication, generic medication. And pilocarpine, there are fewer companies making pilocarpine now, and the price of that has gone up. So uh, we should tell our patients to shop around because it will definitely save them money to investigate in their area uh, what they can get the cheapest. And sometimes it pays to pay cash for a drop rather than use your insurance card because at least in our area, Walmart has Timolol as a $4 drop. And many patients have a $20 copay and don't know if they just take a prescription and pay for it the old-fashioned way they'll save a tremendous amount of money. Good point. Any other uh, points that you want to make about generic medications before we switch gears slightly? Well, I think some people, because they feel indebted to their drug rep, will reach for a combination drug as the uh, next step or the first step. And I always like to use single therapy and um, because many times if you give a combination which is more expensive you could have gotten by with just one of the components of that um, combination and again realize as a prescribing doctor whether your loyalty subconscious or not is to the rep who comes by and schmoozes you and takes you out to eat and therefore you feel indebted to or your loyalty is to your patient and you want to prescribe the least number of medications that cost them the least. There was an interesting statistic I heard recently with uh, the marketing data and prostaglandin analogs are now the number one prescribed medication for glaucoma, which isn't too surprising, but second is combination drops. And that, yeah, that just doesn't seem right for the reasons you said. Um, we, we really should, not just in terms of cost, but also in terms of minimizing the number of side effects from medications, not add dr extra drugs that they may, patients may not even need uh, in, in, by putting them on a combination when a single agent would do. I could not agree more. I do use combinations, but if I have a patient on Timolol and think that dorzolamide might be the next step, then I'll put them on the combination when a single copay will save them money more and certainly convenience. But I don't go to two drugs when they're not on one of those components already. And there is at least one combination, I think, which uh, if you prescribe the components separately, it's a lot cheaper than prescribing the, uh, 
the combination because there is only one branded combo. I think that's the case for Combigan. Right, and Simbrinza as well. We're also wondering about talking about uh, what I guess we used to refer as the rubber chicken dinner. <laughs> any any comments on that, if you know what I'm talking about? I do indeed. Um, I think there is a lack of transparency and a lack of disclosure of conflict of interest on the part of many speakers who are, quote, key opinion leaders, both in devices and drugs for the various uh, companies in our industry. I love what these companies have done in supplying new drugs and new devices to us, but some ophthalmologists are paid five, six, and even seven figures to be leaders for these companies and giving talks. And what I would like for them to do is to disclose exactly how much money they make when they give up to make a talk. If somebody's being paid a few hundred dollars to give a talk every now and then, I'm gonna pay more attention than if I know somebody is a regular speaker for any of these companies. And the reason is, if you're a regular speaker, then you, consciously or unconsciously, have slanted your talk to suit the master. And the master wants you to help them sell product. And so you, as an audience member, should just be aware of that. And if you try to find the details of how much some of these key opinion leaders are paid, you cannot. I went to Pfizer's list of disclosure, and they have thousands of names of ophthalmologists, mostly those that got $5 lunches. But to be able to go and search the database easily and find out who's being paid five, six, and seven figures, it's almost impossible to do. So I would make a call for uh, disclosure of conflicts and transparency. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing what some of these key opinion leaders do. I just want to know the exact relationship so that I can more easily judge the content of their talk. What if the talk is a rather neutral talk that doesn't obviously promote any particular drug? Uh, do you think the speaker is not biased there? Do you think there's no influence on the audience if some company is sponsoring a talk that's on, on the surface at least seems to be non-biased? Well, that's a good question. I don't go to any of these dinners anymore, so I don't know whether the talks are neutral or not. But I do know this, and there have been articles about this, not just in, in the eye realm of things, is that you're not, you don't get repeated invitations to give talks by a company unless they're happy with the content. And so it may sound neutral, but there's something you're saying that's making the company happy or they wouldn't continue to ask you to do so. So you just have to try to tease out the primary, secondary, and tertiary motives in someone giving you a talk. What if the speaker who goes up there says that they've given talks for every company? We see that a lot. They say, I've, I've on the speaker's bureau of this company, that company, you know, companies A, B, C, D, E, and F. Therefore, I'm not biased. 
transparency and disclosure of payments would help me judge. So if they get $1,000 from one company and $30,000 from another company, I might be able to better judge uh, what they say and what, what drugs they talk about. And some companies start campaigns with the later introduction of a product in mind. And therefore, you can give a perfectly neutral and accurate talk, but you may not be aware of the ultimate motive of the company. And this was documented in the uh, instance of a, a drug for, I think it was hormonal replacement for women. This company knew that they were going to introduce this drug in two or three years, and so they flooded the country with perfectly accurate talks about the need for hormonal replacement, not mentioning any problems with it. And then when the drug was introduced, the audience had been primed. So these doctors may have been doing this in perfectly good faith. Uh, and in ophthalmology, I've noticed uh, a number of articles in the throwaways about the evils of preservatives. And to me, part of it was true and accurate and helps people, uh, doctors, know what's going on with their patients. But part of it, I think, was to prime doctors to use brand name drugs with a different preservative uh, so that they could sell their drug more. Right, so that when they came out with their non-preserved formulation, you would, of course, prescribe the branded non-preserved formulation. Yeah. Well, great. It's been great chatting, and we'll have to have you on again because there are a lot of uh, ethical issues that are near and dear to my heart that we could get into. And, uh, of course, one thing that I recommend to everywhere I go is that people read your book, Waking Up Blind, which uh, covers a lot of ethical issues. And that's just not just for everyone in ophthalmology, but for everyone in medicine to read. Thank you very much, and I will be true to what I think people should do. I have a financial interest in your saying that, but I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that when I do post a new episode, you'll automatically receive it on your device. The show can be found on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere that fine podcasts can be found. There are some great new interviews that I've already recorded that should be posted in the weeks and months ahead, so please keep checking back. Please provide feedback at podcasts at iguy.org. That's I-G-U-Y dot O-R-G. If you could please rate the show on iTunes, that will help improve the rankings so that others will find it. Remember that audio material can count for continuing professional development and can also inspire you to start a personal learning project to pursue the topics in greater detail. The show notes provide references that you can track down to further enhance your learning. If you are not using the enhanced version of the podcast that has the show notes, these are available at iguy.tv podcast. Check out my blog on glaucoma, edtech, health IT, and technology, wholelotofrob.com. That's w-h-o-l-e-l-o-t-t-a-r-o-b dot com or iguy.tv slash blog 
follow me on Twitter at Rob Scherzer or iGuide.tv slash Twitter and visit my website at westcoastglaucoma.com or iGuide.tv slash office, which is packed with iFacts, including animated videos explaining different surgical techniques. Remember to keep fighting glaucoma by early detection so that nobody loses vision from this disease. Until next time, I'm Rob Scherzer, and I've been talking about glaucoma.